0: Hi! Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show Podcast. On this episode, we talk about gender equity in sport with the Minister of Sport in Canada, Kirsty Duncan. We'll talk about new baseball rules with J.B. Bettens of the MJBL. And a preview of the Manitoba 4A Boys Provincial High School Basketball Championship. The Final Four, Friday at IGUAC. That's on the podcast. Tomorrow night at Investors Group Athletic Center, or AGAC, it's the Manitoba Boys, for a high school basketball Final Four. There have been zero upsets to this point in the tournament. Literally, the higher seed has won all eight games so far. First team with the chance to buck that trend is Sturgeon Heights at 6 p.m. Friday. The four seed up against top-ranked Vincent Massey, who lost just once all year and lost in the final a year ago. Huskies went 24-7 and this season, looking for their first provincial title. And point guard Mason Krause is pretty pumped to hit the court.
1: Well, we weren't, we weren't supposed to be here. I played Tobo with some of the guys on Massey in St. Paul's, and they weren't expecting us to be top 10, so I'm kind of hyped up to set an upset on Friday.
0: So what is, how daunting a task is it to play Vincent Massey in the semis?
1: Uh, it's, well, they're big with Kyler, Donald, and then Jackson's a good point guard. He reads the floor well, and we're also really undersized, but I think that's they're going to look down on us, and that'll give us a little bit of advantage.
0: So you think you can sneak in and maybe pull an upset
1: here? Yeah, I feel like we get an upset, but we're going to have to play like a really close-to-perfect game. So I guess tell me about the strengths of your team. Uh, our team, we play really aggressive defense, fast-paced. That's where like we played them earlier, and we just tried to make them run. That's what we're good at. We're good at shooting threes and just like running the gap. So in your games against Vincent Massey so far, how have they gone? Uh, pretty good. We've had them below 10 twice, and then one bad game, it was 20, but like, we don't talk about that one. But, it's, but you haven't beat them yet? No, they, they have the edge on us right now, but I think Friday will be different.
0: So the, the fact that you know a lot of people, and players know a lot of different players on these teams when you're playing provincials and stuff, how does, that, does that change anything? Does it make it more fun?
1: Uh, yeah, it makes it fun, but also it creates more of an, uh, I guess, competitive mindset because I don't want to lose to them, and I know they don't want to lose to us, so it's just going to be a really good game.
0: Massey is the top seed, boasting Kyler Filowich, 6'8", a total nightmare to guard, the top player in the province. Cross, by the way, the guy you just heard is the number two player in the annual Winnipeg Sun Coaches Pool. Trojans guard Jackson Tichinsky, who quarterbacked his school to a championship in the fall, is confident he can help Vincent Massey win its first ever 4A boys title.
2: You know, you work all year for this, and then, you know, when the time comes, you just got to show out, and yeah, I'm really excited. So you feel like there's a target on Vincent Massey? Definitely. Being the number one team, you're always going to have a target on your back. Um, Teams are just going to want it. Not much more against you, but, you know, we're looking forward to that challenge. What does your team do well? I think we we defend pretty well. We have a pretty good um, interior offense. and I think we just play really well as a team. We have a good team in chemistry. I feel like your team's pretty big. Yeah, we definitely definitely are pretty big. You know, we have the best big man in the province. We also have another very good big man in the province. Um, and yeah, we definitely use our
0: size to our advantage. So are a lot of the players from your, your football team on this team as well? No, just me and Kyler. So you got the, the different kind of group of friends then?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know. it's. I love my basketball team, my football team both. So it's good. It's fun. How important is it for you to kind of cap off your high school career this uh, on a high note? Um, definitely, that's all. Really, w- I wanted two championships as a senior. Um, and, you know, got one, and just got to get this basketball one. And you know, I'm looking really forward to it. I'm really excited, and I'm pumped. What is it about Sturgeon Heights that could give you guys a little bit of problems? Um, they're a very good three-point shooting team, and they have some players that can make really big plays. And if they get hot, they can they can really put a dent in us. So we just got to be. We just got to protect the three and we just got to contain them. Have you been this far before? Yeah. Yeah, last year. um, We made the finals and then lost, but yeah. How important is it to get back and kind of avenge that? Um, Very important. After that finals game, after we lost, um, you know, I just kept thinking about it, thought about it for a long time, and, you know, I've worked really hard. Our team's worked really hard, and, you know, that's all we really want is this championship.
0: Surprise, surprise, it was St. Paul's who got the better of Vincent Massey in last year's title game. And it's the Crusaders who enter as the two-seed, 27-2 this year, against three-seed Dakota. Coach Jeff LePing is hoping to get his team back to its third straight final and fifth in six years.
3: Oh, this time of year is always fun. Uh, March, uh, you know, you have the NCAA tournament, you've got high school basketball. It's tons of fun.
0: So tell me about uh, your opponent Friday.
3: Uh, Well, we've got Dakota, who's uh, the third-ranked team in the province. Uh, We've played them a couple times this year. Both games were really tight. Uh, Going into the fourth, we managed to kind of pull away a little bit in both games. But I'm looking forward to a real tough matchup on Friday.
0: Do you feel like you and Vincent Massey in a lot of sports have targets on your back whenever it comes to these tournaments?
3: Um, I, I, definitely think, uh, you know, every season's different, but, uh, I do think that, uh, both schools over the last three or four years have really, you know, we seem to be here every year and, uh, uh it, it makes a pretty big target on your back. Yes.
0: What does your team do well on the court?
3: Uh, I think we have a good blend of, uh, of speed and athleticism. Um, we're, I, I think, an underrated defensive team um, and we were able to kind of uh, uh, defend from multiple different spots so
0: when you're growing through the season do you ever think about being there Monday night or do you kind of just focus on it game by game
3: um, I, I think you you always have that as your as your goal for the year uh, but if you get caught up in thinking about just that you're you know you can lose sight of what needs to be done during that moment and and certainly Um, A lot of the questions here are about Monday and we have to make sure we're still focused on Friday's game in order to get the opportunity to play in Monday's game. so.
0: So is that something you tell your players about a lot?
3: Uh, definitely. We've uh, we only talked about this whole week. We've only been talking about Dakota and what Dakota does and what we need to do in order to, to beat Dakota. So that's been our focus all week and if we make it by Dakota then we'll
4: worry about Monday on Saturday.
0: And longtime Dakota coach Dean Favoni knows to win the title Monday night it's going to take two really big performances.
4: I think on paper we're an underdog and we've lost to St. Paul's twice during the season so uh, that's a label I think we uh, have earned, yes.
0: <laughs> but you, you've this is the thing, though. you faced all these teams before, so you know what they bring to the table. What does it take now to beat St. Paul's?
4: We're going to have to control pace of play. We're going to have to really try to control the control the boards and limit how much uh, Dante and Luka have the ball in their hands and how much they can score.
0: And what about your team? What's your forte?
4: Uh, we have Marcus Foreman and Christian Aie, who are two, two bigs, and I think we have some really good and steady guard play, and hopefully those two things coupled together were enough to get us uh... through to monday
0: how exciting is this time of year for you as a coach
4: this is this is uh... the best weekend in uh... the high school basketball season every coach uh... tries to get to this media conference tries to get to the final four banquet and tries to play on that friday night at u of m
0: and how are the crowds usually for those games
4: crowds are usually uh, reasonable on the friday night and uh... if you make it to the monday the uh, championship day they're usually uh... Crowds are usually fantastic. A lot of school support comes out that day.
0: So uh, how many times have you made it to the final in your 28 years?
4: This is the final. I've been to one championship game and was fortunate enough to win that, And uh, but been to a few Final Fours along the way.
0: So it's a rare accomplishment, almost three decades. What would it mean to get this team to be playing Monday night?
4: Uh. Winning at winning at this point of the season is hard. Uh, the kids are really happy to be in a Final Four, but I, they would love to win one or two more games and uh, cap the season off with uh, a celebration on Monday night.
0: So those semifinals again going tomorrow, 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock. Oak Park winning the first girls semifinal tonight. Other news today, while well, Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Baseball Players Association announcing together a series of rule changes that will go into effect over the next two seasons. The agreement's still subject to ratification by the 30 clubs, but joining me to go through the rules is Jamie Bettons, president of the Manitoba Junior Baseball League. And first of all, Jamie, before we get to the rules changes, how's your offseason going?
5: Uh, it's been great. Uh, you know, winter is always going to be what it is in in Winnipeg and Manitoba, but uh I get a chance to travel for work down to some sunnier climes, and uh, sometimes see a spring training game or two. I haven't uh, had that chance this year, but uh, definitely been in some hotter areas and got to see a few high school games and stuff like that. And uh, kind of get my fix in and the Manitoba Junior Baseball League has started their executive meetings and uh, things are well on their way.
0: So when does the season get started for you?
5: Uh, we're going to start in May, as we typically do, just after or around the long weekend Uh, teams are, you know, starting indoor workouts as we speak and uh, everything is kind of moving uh, as it should be at this time.
0: Well, so we'll preview the, uh, the MLB season maybe in a few weeks, but just today the news is these uh, on-field agreements between the MLB and MLBPA. First of all, it's kind of weird that they're doing this when they're, they're not actually in the process of coming up with a new CBA, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, It's encouraging to see that both sides are engaged on on these matters. Um, What that tells me is both sides, you know, have a desire to to work things out, work in in concert with each other. And uh, the other thing that these rules kind of speak to as well is that This is about the fans. It's it's realizing that, you know, they don't have a game without the fans uh, buying the tickets every night, which are affording these massive contracts and TV contracts and everything else. So the fact that they're making some of these alterations and they seem to have the spirit of the fan at the heart of it, uh, it, I think is, is encouraging.
0: So there have been a number of changes announced for this upcoming season. Inning breaks will be shortened just just ever so slightly by five seconds in local games. By 25 seconds, though, in national games, mound visits going down from six to five. Uh, The waiver trade deadline is done. Uh, Some All-Star game changes. I think it's the 2020 changes that are different. The bigger changes when you get rid of the September 40-man roster and the fact that pitchers will have to pitch to three batters or the end of a half inning, what stood out to you amongst these changes?
6: Um,
5: For for me, I think that's the biggest one because that affects the players the most. Um, It changes how you manage the game. It changes how you construct your lineup uh, and your, 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 your roster uh, at that point. I think what you're going to see now um, and, and and it's, it's crazy already to see how many guys are going in for Tommy John surgeries and and overuse injuries with these max effort type pitching nowadays. But now you're going to see, I think the starters lasting a little bit longer, kind of going back to previous eras where, you know, the, the, the reliance on your starter to go and get you a few more outs as opposed to, you know, bringing in a, Uh, a right-handed specialist or a left-handed specialist to get a certain, you know, power hitter out. I think you're going to see them stick with their starters a little bit longer, which may result in injuries. It may result in more fastballs being left up, maybe more runs and maybe more games kind of uh, swinging in the balance and keeping fans in their seats uh, rather than leaving around the sixth or seventh inning, knowing the Yankee bullpen is going to just shut it down for the next three. So I I think, I think it's going to be an adjustment, but I I do think that both the fans and the teams will adjust and enjoy the change.
0: Does that actually wind up saving time then?
5: I think it does to a certain degree. Um, I I think it's, you know, when, when you go to a game, and I think that that's the thing that turns a lot of people off, is when you get to a sixth inning of a game and... You go through the, the the top of the order and then all of a sudden the the, four, the the fourth batter comes up and he's a lefty power hitter. Well, then there's a break in action to talk to the pitcher, which is really to stall and give the guy in the bullpen more time to warm up. Then he makes the call to the bullpen. And by the time that guy gets out to the mound, gets his warm up pitches in. And then the catcher goes and talks to him about, you know, the plan to go after this guy. That's the stuff where, you know, people get what I think is turned off on the game. And by eliminating this or, you know, minimizing the amount of time that can be delayed, it's more of a, uh, you know, honest onus on the pitcher to, to really get going and the teams to, to be better prepared prior to the game on how to do those things.
0: But it also increases the strategy for a manager where he looks at and says, well, we can bring in a guy. If it's a lefty specialist with two outs, he only, he gets the guy out. He can be done because that half inning is over but it's then incumbent on the the first pitcher to get those two outs to get your reliever in if you if you want him to face only one batter.
5: One of my favorite terms in baseball is the loogie or the left-handed yes. one-out guy. Yes, and the fact that we may be losing that now, uh, you know, is a little bit scary. It's going to cost you know some guys uh, their careers or some contracts if if they don't have the ability to get you know right-handers or right-handers don't have the ability to get left-handers out. Um, it will change for sure, but it also changes for the, uh, the, the team on offense, you know, how do you construct your lineup? You know, how do we put this hitter and that header together so that we're prepared if we get into a situation where, you know, we can maybe convince a team to keep their starter in when they're tired uh, and maybe go get a- get after him in the sixth inning, even though he's been dealing for the first five against us. It's, it's kind of unique uh, and, it's, and it's exciting, quite frankly.
0: So that's the big uh, pace of play measure that's coming in the next couple of years. The mound visits, I mean, six to five, whatever. I think that doesn't really do much. And then the the inning breaks, shortening them a bit will will be good as well. But in terms of the, the play, that's the big one. But from what I've heard from some pundits is all these changes are great. But until the style of play changes, we're talking about just going for home runs and strikeouts and that's it. Because balls aren't being put in play as often, that's why some of these games are boring. Does that sound like an, a, a good argument to you?
5: Very much. The game has gone from, you know, pitchers who can pitch to pitchers who can throw, and uh, that's consequently changed the offensive side of the game to, you know, hitters who need to choke up with two strikes to just put the ball in play and, and make things happen. Uh, we used to call it, you know, starting the track meet on the base pass to you know gripping and ripping and you know trying to hit it 500 feet deep and you know you're really paying a lot of money to go watch a baseball game and watch two players the pitcher versus the batter and everybody else you know becomes a bit of a moot point at that at that at that point in time during a game with some of these changes i think you're going to see a shift go back towards you know a pitcher having the ability to throw more strikes or a starter who has to stay in to face the lefty, even though they could have taken him out. And now he has to be better with his control when he's tired, uh, hit more corners, and you have to have better game plans, which which I think in turn will start to make it look like the old game, so to speak. And I think that fans will enjoy that uh, refreshing, but still kind of same old change.
0: Another provision for 2020 is changing the active roster. So the regular season roster will be up. Uh, slightly by one player, but the big change is September going down from 40 to 28 on the active roster. I was always curious why September they allowed 40 when it would cut down again by the playoffs. Did that ever make sense to you?
5: It, it did because it's they, they always refer to it as the September call-ups, and that's where teams get to you know explore prospects, bring guys up for a taste of the life, uh, get them exposed to the – to the living and and the playing and the speed of play so that they're ready. It's more of a prospective thing. I think that this is something that was born more on the players association side from a competitive balance standpoint. Uh, When you look at the end of the season and you're trying to chase somebody for a pennant or you're trying to chase them for a playoff spot, and the team that you're chasing is playing a team that's starting a whole bunch of guys that are on the expanded roster, basically playing a AAA team, that has a lot to do with the competitive balance of the league going into the playoffs, and it's probably cost some teams playoff spots, which is costing owners a lot of revenue, which is, which is in turn going back to these players. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is one that the players association or, or even the owners really went to bat for. It's going to be one that's maybe talked about a little bit less because it's not as exciting as some of the others, but I think it's one of the biggest impacts.
0: There's also a joint committee between uh, the MLB and MLBPA to study other potential changes. I'm wondering if some of the more radical ones being a pitch clock and then limiting defensive shifts, uh, making sure that you only have two people on either side of the infield at any time. I know some uh, minor leagues are experimenting with these sorts of things. Do you think that those are inevitabilities in the major league game? You know,
5: if, if I was to target one, uh, the one that I'm surprised hasn't been talked about is, is the elimination of the DH or the adding of the DH to both leagues. To, to me, that would change the game significantly because the, the pace of play or the style of play would be very similar in both leagues. It would free up the ability for free agents to sign in both leagues. Uh, when you get a little bit older longer in the tooth you kind of eliminate yourself from being a national league player because there's just not as much bench space Whereas you can still kind of be a slugger and go play in the american league uh, that was one that i was kind of surprised wasn't talked about but moving forward um, you know any of the radical changes have to start somewhere the NHL's done that before we've we've seen them experiment at kind of summer camps and things like that and you know Everything comes from an idea, and uh, the best thing they can do is start it and, you know, good on the Atlantic League to to be a part of the kind of proving ground. And if some of them work and the fans like it and it makes for a better game, I think everybody wins.
0: Now the Atlantic League also doing some radical stuff with uh, electronic strike zones and moving the pitching mound back a slight bit as well. Did those seem a little too radical? I think so, uh, and I think baseball
5: is, you know, such a game steeped in, in – just the history, uh, I think that that's going to be a very, some of those are going to be very tough to kind of move towards and and look more like you know, tennis with the active eye and things telling you whether or not a serve is a fault or not. Um, Baseball is one of the few games left, aside from tennis, I think that doesn't have a score clock, and I think that that is really the reason why the games seem to go on so long. I'm not advocating that you put one in, um, but based on that feature. I, I just don't see some of those radical changes, you know, coming to fruition, at least not anytime soon.
0: Well, tennis has introduced a serve clock uh, in, in most places where they have to do their serve by, which is kind of similar to the idea of a pitching clock. But uh, just before I let you go, you mentioned tradition and comparing it to the the DH that that's one of the big hurdles that the national league faces is, is the tradition of not having it in that league. I think for the long-term health of the game it's going to happen it's just a matter of time but there's going to be some hurdles people resisting it because that's just not the way it's been
5: everybody is going to be resistant to change and and when you have a game that's just so steeped in history uh, it's probably one of the hardest things to do Um, but again when you're talking about some of these changes that they're already making um, you know it's all for pace of play it's all for more excitement. It's all for creating offense. And so when you talk about a radical change such as that, if the underlying result of the change is to improve the product, uh, you know, both sides, Players Association and the, the owners, you know, really have to take, take a look at it into consideration. And, I mean, you don't have to look any further than over to the American League to really get it. And, and the proof is in the pudding because it's been there for years already.
0: Jamie, I appreciate your time as always. Uh, we'll check in again uh, close to opening day. Absolutely. Thanks again. So Gregory Strong in the uh, of the Canadian press wrote this week that several top curlers have started talks with Curling Canada to address concerns about the difference between men's and women's payouts at the national championships. The winning team at the Briar, Kevin Cooey, they got seventy grand for the title. Chelsea Carey, thirty-two thousand. What? Lisa Weigel plays lead on Team Rachel Holman, of course. She's part of this group of curlers who have recently discussed the subject with the Federation. We're confident, she said, that they're listening to our concerns and that they're working with their sponsors to try to make it equal. Now, in addition to prize money, national champion teams eligible for athlete funding from Sport Canada. The national team's finalists also, or the national men's finalists, also earned over double the money of the women's finalists. Brendan Botcher's team, 50 grand for losing Rachel Holman's team, 24 grand for coming second at the Scotties. Kerry on a recent conference call said, quote, I can understand there being some general difference because the Briar nets more money. If you look at ticket sales and the patch and all that stuff, the viewership ratings are slightly higher, but the difference isn't justified completely. So I think from a financial standpoint, from a business standpoint, it's hard to demand exactly equal money. That'd be great, but it does need to get closer. We are having those conversations to move it in that direction. Now, some other domestic events like, Pinty's Grand Slam events or the Home Hardware Canada Cup, they give an even split for prize money payouts. That's a good start. But the Briar and the Scotties are the number one events here in Canada for curling. The Briar had a, a higher overall audience, according to a TSN spokesman telling Gregory Strong. Now, in terms of playoff viewership, it was actually more for the women. Scotty's final average $762,000 to the Briar 659000 mm-hmm. Okay. That's kind of inconsistent every year. Some of it in terms of gate revenue depends on where the tournament's being held. Obviously, a Briar and Brandon is going to make more gate revenue than a Scotty's in Sydney, Nova Scotia, just because Brandon is kind of a, you know, Manitoba's a curling hotbed, Nova Scotia not so much. So it's good that they're talking about this because in tennis, equal prize money. We see some of these tournaments equal prize money. Whether you're a man or a woman, curling is curling. And the enormous gap, I get it if you don't close it all the way, but they got to make it closer than 70 to 32? Come on. That's not good. Now, gender equity in sport is also a topic I discussed earlier today with the Honorable Kirsty Duncan as the Minister of Science and Sport, uh, the government announced $3 million in funding over four years for the Canadian Association of Advancement for the Advancement of Women in Sport and Physical Activity. CAUSE is the abbreviation to support its efforts to increase participation of women and girls in sports as athletes and leaders. I talked to, as I mentioned, Minister Duncan earlier today, and I asked, why is this so important to her?
6: Uh, sure, Christian, and thank you. Um, I'm going to take you back a bit. Uh, In budget 2018, our government committed $30 million to achieve gender equity in sport by 2035. I've made it very clear I'd like to see that happen earlier. I've been an athlete, coach, judge all my life, and I want as many children and youth having a great, quality, safe sport experience. Sport teaches physical health, Um, It's good for mental health, emotional health, but it teaches commitment, dedication, digging deep on the hard days, how to set goals, how to achieve them. It teaches you about life, and that's good for everybody.
0: So what does gender equity in sport mean? Like Tangibly, how can you measure that?
6: Uh, Sure. So if we look today at sport participation, about 36% of boys, and men uh, participate in sport compared to about 16% of women and girls. So, you know, I look at the data. What does, sports, what does gender equity mean? It means we want to see equal participation of women and girls in sport. We want to see women and girls um, coaching, and we have great coaches out there, but there's, there's not equity there more women and girls officiating, and, of course, we want to see more women and more women in leadership positions. And we know when there's more women in leadership positions, for example, uh, it's safer sport for all.
0: So what are some of the barriers, then, that exist right now preventing equity from being achieved?
6: Well, um, for example, we want to make sure that there is the pathways For if you've been an athlete, are there pathways to go into coaching? If you're in coaching, are you rising through the ranks of coaching? If you're in officiating, are you rising through the ranks of officiating? Um, You know, I'm a former scientist. I have pulled the data. I've looked at the data by force, men, boys, women, and girls. And I've looked at from participation through the coaching and leadership positions. And that's why we're investing this $3 million um, to go to CAUSE. And what they are going to be doing is looking at our national sport organizations, one of the areas, and doing gender audits. Where are we doing well? Where does there need to be work being done? Because we're going to have to measure progress. If we are not actually collecting the data, we will not see if we're making progress and achieving our targets by 2035.
0: And I imagine Uh one of the, I guess, biggest tasks is figuring out why adolescent girls tend to drop out of sport at a much higher rate than boys and encouraging them to stay with, with sports going forward.
6: A really important area you've just uh, raised, particularly in adolescence. We know that um, young girls tend to drop out of sports at a much higher rate. Uh, We're working now um, with the education, physical and health education, and to create intramural sports that uh, girls are actually developing. Kids who are traditionally not interested in sport, but they're saying this is the kind of programming we want and developing a program. So that's an innovation we're working on right now. This comes out of the gender equity working group I established uh, last spring. This was the first for Canada. I brought together 12 champions of sports, um, included people like Uh, Haley Wickenheiser, uh, Juan E. Corn miller John Herdman, academics, coaches, all coming together to see how we do this better so we get more kids involved in sport and having that great sport experience and hopefully wanting to be involved throughout their lives.
0: Now, yesterday it was announced that there was a a toll-free confidential helpline being lost in an effort to combat harassment and abuse in sport, Is there any connection between gender equity and some of the past issues that we've seen in, in terms of harassment and abuse?
6: Uh, great question. Uh, we know when more women are involved, it's a safer sports environment for all. Since week one on the job, and I've been sport minister for about a year, I made my priority Addressing abuse, discrimination, and harassment in sports. Um, That's why I put in place the Gender Equity Working Group to provide solutions, how we do this better to get equity in sports, and how we address abuse. In June, I announced um, that in order for our federally funded national sports organizations to receive funding, they must have an anti-abuse, discrimination, harassment policy, they must report all cases of abuse. They must put in place a third party to investigate any cases and they must put in place mandatory training by April 2020. And I've made it clear we expect that to happen earlier. Through the summer and through the fall, I worked with ministers, sport ministers across the country saying this is my number one priority to end abuse in sport. And in the fall, I held a joint federal, provincial, territorial teleconference on ending abuse in sport. So when we went to the Canada Games, great games, by the way, congratulations to all the tremendous athletes, uh, we had a federal, provincial, territorial sports ministers meeting. We, at that meeting, signed the Red Deer Declaration, which is the first time. Sport ministers from across the country have come together and say they're going to make ending abuse a priority. Then we're working with the Coaching Association of Canada, who's going across the country for a regional summit, and there will be a national summit to develop a code of conduct for sports. And to your point, most recently, yesterday. I announced that we would have a third party, an independent third party, arm's length investigative unit through the Sports Dispute Resolution Center of Canada, the SDRCC, as well as a toll free confidential helpline that will be available to um, victims of abuse, to those, um, to athletes. To witnesses, I've been very clear. There can no longer be a bystander effect. If you see a child is being hurt, a child is being harmed, you have to speak up. For athletes who um, are suffering, if there are athletes out there, I want them to know that this toll, this confidential toll line exists, this helpline. Um, It is manned by professionals, counselors, psychologists, psychotherapists who will listen, that this is a safe space, that it's confidential, and um, they will provide information of where you can go for next steps for help, whether that is to the police, to child protection services, or to other provincial and territorial resources.
0: When you took over this portfolio, was, were you surprised that a lot of this had never existed before?
6: Um, as I said, athlete, coach, and judge all my life. And when I coach, the most important thing for me is that my athletes are healthy and safe. It's the number one issue. you got to keep your kids healthy and safe. Number two is that they learn the skills they need to learn and then what their dreams are and how you can help them achieve them. But number one, it starts with healthy and safe, and that's my number one priority. It is my priority to put our athletes, our children, and their youth at the center of everything we do in sports.
0: Minister Duncan, anything else you want to add before I let you go?
6: I just want to say thank you for your interest. And uh, to athletes who have had the courage to come forward, um, who who have suffered abuse, I want to say thank you. And to those who are suffering, I want them to know there is a safe place for them to go, and I thank you for your interest.
0: Okay. Minister Duncan, I appreciate your
6: time. Thank you so much.
0: Check out the CJOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 p.m. with Christian O'Mel and the Sports Show Podcast. Not available on iTunes. Not available on Google Podcasts. Not available anywhere you get your favorite podcasts Yes.